There's a story that uh, Steve Newman used to tell that I, it's one of those stories you find hard to forget. It always tickles my my funny bone every time I hear it. There's a story uh, uh, about some German pastors that came over to the United States to observe in various churches. And as they were traveling throughout the southern part of the United States, they, they became deeply concerned by what they considered to be the carnality of the churches there. The fact that people seem to be preoccupied with uh, buying the latest model car and, and uh, preoccupied with appearances, spending a lot of money on clothes and those sorts of things. And they were convinced that uh, this was, uh, uh, was a carnality that needed to be addressed. And they, they gathered in their hotel room one night to pray for the Christians in those churches. And uh, as they prayed, they, they were they were so exercised. Their hearts were so uh, they were so much in anguish over the worldliness of these Christians that they began to weep. And as they cried, the tears ran down their faces and off the ends of their cigars and into their mugs of beer. That story illustrates well the issue that Paul wants to address in this chapter because there are a number of, of cultural issues that become identified with, with morality in, in, in our minds. It's what a friend of mine calls folk Christianity, these add-ons to Scripture that we cling to tenaciously and believe to be absolute. And uh, it's this issue that Paul is concerned with. Really what he's doing in this chapter is helping us to construct a a moral theory, a way of determining what's right and what's wrong, a way of looking at the so-called gray areas. I don't like that term because it suggests something halfway good and halfway evil. I don't think there are any things like that in our universe. But uh, nevertheless, that's how we describe them. What, what are these, these gray issues about which Scripture does not speak? How, how do we decide whether they're right or wrong? Smoking, drinking, dancing, playing cards, going to movies. The sorts of things uh, that were stressed when I was a youngster growing up. So let's look at the passage and see if we can get some help. I want to read it all the way through. It's a very short chapter, just 13 verses, and then we'll come back and look at it and uh, look at some of the bits and pieces of it. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. And even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and and through whom we live. But not everybody knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. 
Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore... If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to, to fall. It's a very easy chapter to outline. Paul begins with a problem in 8.1a. And then from 8.1b on through verse 6, he, he adduces a, a principle, constructs a, a basic principle that we can operate on, and then from verse 7 on, he applies that principle to their problem, and then 13 is, uh, is his personal uh, conclusion. Now, the problem that the Corinthians had was, was the propriety of eating meat that had been offered to idols. As you know, they had written a letter to Paul in which they raised a number of issues, concerns that they wanted him to address. Paul picks up this, uh, this problem, and he... Uh, begins to respond to it. The problem, as I said, was that of, of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. It was the practice in the ancient world to, uh, to eat a portion of the sacrifice. It not only was true in, in, in Jewish worship, but also in pagan Gentile worship. Uh, in Judaism, there was really only one sacrifice that was wholly consumed on the altar. That was the, what they called the holah, the whole burnt offering in which the whole animal was burned. But normally that wasn't true. They sacrificed uh, a leg or a portion of the animal, and, and then they ate the, the animal, either in a, a meal that was associated with the sacrifice, or they took it home and they ate it. And that was the same pattern that was followed, in, strangely, strangely enough, in pagan worship as as well. And in Corinth, that food was sold in the marketplace or it was sold in, in restaurants that were associated in some way with, with the temple. And so the question rose in the minds of, of the Corinthians, should we, should we eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols? Is this meat tainted? Is it, are we somehow implicated in idol worship if we if we go down to the marketplace and we buy a great big sirloin and we take it home and, and we enjoy it, you know, is, is this something we, we shouldn't be doing? Are we, are we sinning? Now, there are some parts of the world where that issue is still in question. Places where people still practice idolatry. China would be, would be a case in point. The Christians there have to wrestle with that issue. In Paul's world, the Jews had already settled it. The, the rabbis said, no, you're, you're not to eat meat that's offered to idols. That's sinful. So Jews, just, they just didn't do it. But what about the Gentiles? What, 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 were they, uh, what were they to do? Now, I do think to some extent we face issues like that. There, there are some people, for example, that, uh, that wonder if they should participate fully in, in some of our holidays, Christmas, for example, since so much of the symbolism of Christmas is, is related not to the crib and, 
the birth of Christ, but uh, rather to pagan worship. And so they, they've decided not to have Christmas trees, for example. They, they won't do that in their homes. There are others that feel uncomfortable about Halloween because of the connection to various uh, cult practices. Uh, someone asked the other day, should we continue to uh, patronize Time Warner, you know, buy books that are produced by publishing companies that are owned by Time Warner, since Time Warner put out uh, Madonna's famous sex book, her coffee table book. You know, should, should we just boycott their products? These are the kind of issues that Christians still have to face. And they're in that fuzzy gray area about which Scripture doesn't speak explicitly, and so we have to ask ourselves, what, uh, what should we do in that, in that case? Now, what Paul is doing here is introducing the whole question of Christian morality and how we know what is right and what is wrong. Uh, the, the world, secular man and, and woman, have a hard time determining anymore what's right because there are very few absolutes in, in, in our world today. Uh, I suppose we could say the state is right, whatever the state determines, determines right and wrong, or... In our society, our democratic society, it, it's 51% of, of the people, or more lately, it's simply what I myself think is, is right. I become the standard of, of, of right and wrong, and, and all of us feel very uncomfortable with that way of approaching uh, moral issues. For those of us that are Christians, the issue is, is settled. Whatever the Bible declares to be categorically wrong is wrong. Where the Bible is very clear about an issue, then we cannot quibble with the authors of Scripture. Not because this is human tradition, but because this is God's Word. Claims to be. We're not saying that the Bible is inspired simply as a reflex of its own claims, but it would be ridiculous for any of us to say the Bible is inspired if it didn't claim that. I think there are other reasons for believing that, that it is. I, I don't have time this morning to go into that issue, but uh, for those of us that are, that are Christians, we believe this is Jesus' word to us. We're not at liberty to question his authority. Whatever he says is our Lord, we must be subject to. A uh, page back in, in chapter 6, when Paul tells us that idolatry is sinful, we have to nod our heads. We have to say, that's right, idolatry is sinful, adultery is wrong, homosexuality is wrong, uh, petty theft, grand theft is wrong, uh, greed is wrong, drunkenness is wrong, false witness and slander, gossip, wrong, wrong, a swindle your brother or sister. We don't have any question about that because the Bible is unequivocally clear. It says if things are wrong. And, 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 and if we're really subject to the authority of Christ, then we, we have to agree. We're subject to him. But it doesn't answer all of our questions because there's a, there's a large area of morality out there about which the Scripture does not speak. So what, how do we tackle these issues? Well, in my experience, I think there are two ways we go about go about facing into these ethical questions. And in each case, there is a, there is a basic assumption from which we're, we're working. When I, was, when I was growing up, the church in which I grew up, the assumption was everything is wrong unless I know it's right. 
you know, the scriptures say certain things are absolutely right, certain things are absolutely wrong, and in these gray areas, they're doubtful. In fact, that, that, that's the way they, that's the term they use, doubtful issues. And because they were doubtful, you could assume they were wrong. That's what I call the dirty, if doubtful, theory. And uh, I came by that, uh, uh, that expression, honestly. I, I, uh, I had a professor once uh, in an ethics class who uh, told the class that he, uh, he went to the closet one time and he, he pulled out a shirt and he wasn't sure whether it was clean or not. And he took it into his mother in the kitchen and he said, is, is this shirt clean? And she said, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. So he tossed it in the, in the, uh, uh, wash pile and a pile of clothes to be washed and he went and got a freshly washed shirt and he put it on and and he pointed out that that is one moral theory if if it's if it's doubtful it's it's dirty and the result i believe of that sort of thinking is that we begin to generate lists of things that are wrong that are not specified to be sin in scripture and those things become absolute now, we all heard lists, we all had our own lists, perhaps. You know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, don't, don't dance, don't go to movies, don't play cards, uh, no mixed bathing. Uh, I was almost in high school before I discovered with what I, with what I was not supposed to be mixed. Uh, it was girls. And I found out when I went to a, a camp, a church camp, and uh, from 1 to 3, the boys swam. And from 3.15 to 5.15, the girls swam. There was a 15-minute uh, segment in there where, you know, where people could move back to their dorm and men and uh, boys and girls didn't have to pass each other. And that, was, that was mixed bathing. Now, I don't mean to ridicule that that way of thinking because those were people that genuinely had a heart for God and their desire was to honor Him and to please Him. But the problem is that those things become set in concrete. They become absolute and eventually they become the criterion for spirituality. If you don't do these things, the filthy five, the dirty half dozen, whatever they are, then you're considered to be a spiritual person. I, I remember applying to a Christian college when I was a senior in high school, and they sent me the application form. And any application form was a list of five or six things that I, I was not supposed to do. I, I not smoke, not drink, not go to movies, so forth. And I remember thinking at the time, all right, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm willing to put myself under that discipline for the next four years. I'll, I'll sign off on that statement, but I reserve the right to be greedy and resentful and bitter and, and lustful. You see what I'm saying? These things miss the point. They, they can actually pull us away from the really important things of, thing of, of the Christian life, which is, is centering on Christ and, and, and doing his, his explicit will. Actually, I think what the Bible teaches is just the reverse. It's not that everything is wrong unless I know it's right. It's just the other way around. Everything is right unless I know it's wrong. That's a wonderfully freeing principle. I mean, here's a whole world out there to enjoy. And unless I know 
unless the Bible categorically tells me that things out there in that world are wrong, then I have the, the freedom, the right, and the privilege to enjoy them. Now, I think that's what Paul means in 1 Timothy 4.4 when he says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is put to its intended wor- uh, use by the, by the Word of God in, in prayer. So that that frees me up. I'm free. But what the Bible proscribes, I must not do. What it prescribes, I must do. But where the Bible is not clear, where it has not specifically spoken to an issue, I can start with the assumption that this thing is all right for me, unless there are good reasons for me to say no. And if I say no, I can make my own list. I must not impose that list on somebody else. I think there are good reasons not to not to smoke. I, you know, the Bible doesn't uh, prohibit it, but it, to me, it's a bad habit. You know, it destroys your health. There's no question about that anymore. I mean, we even have the warning on on the pack. When, when I was growing up, the reason I didn't smoke is because I thought it was unspiritual and it was a very bad habit. It was a habit that controlled people. What I didn't realize is that I had habits that controlled me. Uh, you know, every, every time a friend of mine would reach for a cigarette, I'd reach for a fingernail. I bit my fingernails. That's a very small thing, but what I'm saying, yes, we, we shouldn't let anything control us. Paul, remember the statement that Paul makes earlier in 1 Corinthians? Everything is possible, everything is permissible, but, but I'll not be brought under the control of anything. But see, that principle can be applied to a lot of things. Television can control us. Romance novels can control us. If we really get our idea of life, that everything is going to turn out hunky-dory and that God is going to give us the romance of our life if we just hang in there, that's not reality. And even Christian romance novels sometimes contain that theme and we can get addicted to them. Any addiction would would be wrong. And there are good reasons not to drink. If you're an alcoholic, you see that the biblical approach to the consumption of alcohol is moderation. There's nothing wrong with consuming alcoholic beverages. Our Lord did. He drank wine. He probably watered down, but it still had, a, it had an alcoholic content. Uh, what, what the Bible prescribes is getting drunk. Don't, don't be drunk with wine, he says. That's, that's not grape juice he's talking about. You'd have to drink a ton of grape juice to get drunk, believe me. No, they, they drank wine. Our Lord did. See, so it cannot possibly be sinful for me to drink wine. But if I'm struggling with an addiction to alcohol, or if I have a teenager in my house who's struggling with an addiction to alcohol, then I, 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 you know, I need to think that through. Am I, am I really free to exercise that freedom in that context? What I'm saying is that I can, we can make these lists for ourselves, but we dare not make them for others. If the scriptures do not say something is categorically wrong, absolutely wrong, then, then we can't. The problem is to know when to say no. And uh, what Paul does in this chapter, I believe, is give us one of the best possible reasons for saying no. Let's see if we can follow his, uh, his argument here. As I said, the principle is spelled out in, in verses 1b through uh, 6. Let me just read the first three verses again. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The NIV 
accurately reflects a play on words that, that Paul uses here. Knowledge inflates us, makes us proud. Love builds people up, builds us up, builds others up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is is known by God. Do you understand what he's saying? Knowledge has to be linked with love. Knowledge is is not enough. Now, uh, in verses 4 and following, Paul tells us what this knowledge entails. He's, he's speaking to the Corinthians who had a body of knowledge that was that they were very proud of, and they were imposing that knowledge on others. What is it? Verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but, but one. Idols are no big deal. Idols are a joke, as a matter of fact. That's the approach that the prophets took throughout the Old Testament. They took idolatry very serious. The worship of idols is serious sin, but an idol is a, is a, is a big joke. That's why Isaiah describes uh, people that have their idols having to nail their feet to the floor so they won't fall over. And when the Babylonians were taken into captivity, they had to load their idols on their donkeys. Their idols couldn't help them. They had to help their idols. And the tendency of the prophets is to poke fun at idols. And this is what Paul is saying here. Idols are a joke. And the food that is offered to idols is not in any sense tainted. You're not implicated by... Uh, in the worship of idols by by eating that uh, that meat. And if you go out to eat with a, a non-Christian and he, he puts a piece of meat in front of you that's been offered to an idol, it's all right to eat it. Paul says so later on in, in verse 10. But the problem with knowledge is that it makes us proud. What it does is it makes us feel that we have an edge on, on others. It makes us feel more spiritual. I'm sure you've been in Bible studies where, where someone wants to impress you with how, how much they know. And, and the reason they're doing that, by and large, is because they want you to know that they're, they're a step or two ahead of, of others in their, in, their, in their spiritual progress. Um, I, I, I often wince when I read... Certain letters to the editor in which people let us know in uncertain terms that they're very knowledgeable in, in the scriptures. Really, you know, the more we know, the more we ought to realize how far short we have fallen from the character of God. Our knowledge ought to humble us. It ought to, it ought to rebuke us. But often it does just the opposite. And, 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 and people want to, want to flaunt their, their knowledge in front of, uh, before the readers. And they, and they come across as so harsh and so hard and, and, and without much love. Paul says, no, that, that knowledge has to be coupled with, with love. That's what, that's what gives blend and balance to our life. Knowledge just makes us hard, arrogant, and, and unapproachable. Uh, love alone makes us soft and, and sentimental. We can't, we can't speak unequivocally to people. We, we can't be forthright and honest with, with others. No, the balance is, is knowledge that's coupled with, with love. 
I don't know if you noticed how logical verse 3 is, but you would expect Paul to say something else. Look, look at verse 2. The, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as, as he ought to know. He puts us in our place. The little bit of knowledge we have is really unimpressive. God is underwhelmed by that. But the man who loves God is known by God. Now, you would expect him to say, it would seem to be logic, logically that Paul would say that the man who knows God knows everything. See? But that's not what he says. The man who knows God is, is known by God. Well, what, what does he mean? Well, what, what he's saying is that God knows us inside and out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The issue is not how much I know. The issue is who knows me. The more we read of the scriptures, the more knowledge of God we gain, the more we come to see how much he loves us. That even though he he knows the mean, honorary little urges of our heart, he, he still loves us. He cares about us. And we become overwhelmed with his love for us. Ray Steadman used to have a, uh, used to quote a little poem. It goes like this. Isn't it odd that he who sees the, fa- the facade still loves the clod that he made out of sod? <laughs> now, isn't that odd? <laughs> See what he's saying? That, that when we really realize how much we're loved by God, that he sees us inside and out, it, it tenderizes us. It humbles us. Makes us less sure of ourselves. We don't come off as so cocksure and, 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 and arrogant. It softens us, you see. So what he's saying is knowledge is not enough. It's always truth obeyed in love. It's always truth spoken in love. That's the... That's the blend and and balance that he asks of us. And then he applies that theory in in verse 7. Not everyone knows this. That is, not everyone has this knowledge of idols that you have. Some people are are still so accustomed to idols that that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And and since their conscience is weak, it it is defiled. Here's a young man or young woman who has, has a long association with idolatry and, and they don't feel like they can eat meat that's been offered to idols because it brings back all the memories that they had of, of, of life in that, in that climate, all the, the, the bad things that happened to them and, and the habits that they developed when they were in that, uh, in that environment. And, and just going into a restaurant where that food is served evokes all those, those old, old memories. I have a friend who told me the other day that he, he cannot to this day listen to heavy metal music or rock music. Not the words. It's not the words that bother him. It's the beat and it's the rhythm because it evokes memories of, of those days when uh, he was doing dope. And, 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 it, and it's, he's attracted back into that, into that world. Is there anything wrong with, with rhythm and beat? No, there's nothing inherently wrong with, in my opinion, with with any uh, particular beat. The words are the problem with so much of rock music today and, and certainly heavy, heavy metal music. But uh, 
it was just the beat itself. Now, suppose I invited him to my house, and, and I, I like that music. I don't, but, it, you know, let's say I did. And I put some on my stereo and cranked it up, and my friend begins to wince, and he, and he says, I, and I can't handle this. And, and so I give him a lecture on Christian liberty, and I say, hey, you know, nothing wrong with that. It's just, just, just music. That's all. You should adjust. You should recognize the freedom that you have. See what I'm doing? I'm imposing upon him my freedom. And Paul is saying you can really damage someone that way. We're free, yes, but we have the freedom not to, to exercise our, uh, our freedom. I look at verse 8. This, I believe, is a, a parenthetical expression which is, a, is addressed to the person who has knowledge, the person who knows that an idol is nothing and that food offered to idols uh, in no sense is tainted by that idolatry. He says, food does not bring us near to God. I, I have read that, I suppose, many times. It, 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 it struck me in a new and fresh way this last week. That, that's a principle somehow we need to get into our thinking. Food is utterly irrelevant to our relationship to God. It has nothing to do with God. That, you know, that speaks to our preoccupation with dieting and obsessions with with food and somehow trying to make make uh, certain ways of looking, you know, uh, an, a spiritual issue. When, when, as a friend of mine once said, the issue is not what I put in my mouth; it's it's what comes out. See? What you put in your mouth has really nothing to do with your your relationship to God. It doesn't draw you near to Him. He says, and here he's addressing those that have have knowledge. We're no worse if we do not eat. In other words, we look at the brother whose, whose conscience is weak and tender, and, 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 and we say, he's worse off. He's not as near to God as I am because I can eat, and it doesn't affect my conscience, and he can't. Paul says, that's not true. That's not true. He's no worse if he doesn't eat. Oh, and here's where he turns the screw a little tighter, and you're no better if you do. Say. Be careful, therefore. Not however so much, therefore. That the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone has a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? You urge this brother to go ahead and eat. It's all right. You have the freedom to do so. And you can ruin that brother, he says. What, what he's saying really is what? He's asking us the question, what matters in this world? What's ultimately important? Is it the exercise of my rights or is it the good of my, my brother and sister? And even though I know that, that eating meat offers, offered to idols has nothing whatever to do with my relationship to Christ, this brother, this sister believes it does. And because I love him or her, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll forego my rights. I'll set them aside. Now, I don't think Paul is talking here about people who merely get uptight because we, we exercise some freedom that we have. We feel free to do a thing. We, we, there's no sin in it. We do it. And here's a brother or sister that gets annoyed at us because we do so. That's, that's, that's a different issue. I think that's what Paul addresses. They, they cannot have a Christmas tree in their house. If they believe, they cannot buy a Time Warner book. If they... If they believe that they, they, they cannot, uh, they, they want their children to separate Halloween, that's all right. Leave them alone. Okay? 
That, that's an issue between them and God. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but, but another man whose faith is weak eat, eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. So that means if, if you have a brother or sister who drinks in moderation, who does not get drunk, you must not look down, on, down your nose at them even though you cannot drink. And if your brother or sister permits her children to go out uh, doing, you know, trick-or-treating, and, and his conscience, her conscience is free to do so, then, then let them alone. Let them go. Because, he says, uh, God has accepted him. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. One man worships on Friday night. One man or woman worships on Saturday morning. It's all right. Leave them alone. That, that's between them and God, you see. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to the Lord. And he who abstains does so to the Lord. That's why I say people who make up these lists are not to be... Uh, uh, rejected, they, they, they have a heart for God. They may be wrong, and they're certainly wrong to impose them on other people. But Paul would say, I see their heart. I see why they're doing it. It's because they, they want to draw near to God, and they give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this Reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. In other words, he won that right through the cross. He is their Lord. So let him be their Lord. I'm not your master. See? And you're not my master. Where I am acting contrary to an explicit command of Scripture, something that Scripture proscri proscribes, then you can approach me in love and you can point out that sin to me, but in areas where Scripture is not speak, spoken, then that's an issue that I need to work out with God. That's what he's saying. Now this addresses this whole issue of our getting uptight with one another because someone does something that we feel that we cannot do, something that's not specified in Scripture, neither prescribed or proscribed. And uh, what Paul would say is that that's not any of your business. That's not your bill. You can't make your list their list. Just, just leave them alone. See. But you see, what Paul is talking about here in, in 1 Corinthians 8 is a different issue. It's where there's a brother or sister that we know we're going to damage in some way. And we, because we really do feel free, we flaunt that freedom and we impose that freedom on them and we damage them. And what Paul is saying is people are far more important than any right that you have. You're so free, you don't even have to exercise your freedom. You're, you're, free, to, you're free to love them. I, I often say to these young pastors that are in churches that are locked into legalism, you know, that, that's, legalism is an awful thing, these extra-biblical rules that get imposed on other, other people. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 14. It cuts the heart and soul right out of a, of a church because people get preoccupied with all these do's and don'ts and they forget that the main thing is knowing God and loving Him and centering their hearts on, 
on him. So it's got to be addressed. So what you should do is teach freedom. Teach it loud and clear the way Paul did in Galatia. But don't exercise it. See? If your congregation is uptight about any of these problematic areas, go ahead and teach the truth. Don't, don't pull any punches. Don't be embarrassed to speak what the Bible, uh, teach what the Bible actually says. But for a period of time, just forego the exercise of that right because people are far more important than any right that you have. And it's very possible that in exercising that right, you may shut the door so that those people will never listen to you again. And that's a, that's a terrible violation of, of the law of love. Let me close with an illustration uh, that I heard, uh, as I understand, it's a true story, something that happened a number of years ago. There was a young student, uh, Arab student in the United States, who had become a believer through the ministry of, of ISI, International Student Ministry. Uh, the, uh, his commitment to Christ was authentic. He was invited to a, a, a picnic that was sponsored by ISI. And as he passed by the, the table, uh, the only sandwiches that were left were ham sandwiches, ham and cheese sandwiches. And, of course, being a Muslim in the past, uh, that was he had, he had never eaten ham. He would not eat ham. But now he was a Christian. So when he was offered the ham sandwich uh, by the young woman behind the table, he said, well, I, I, I think I'll pass today. I'll just eat an orange or something. And, and she said, well, you know, you're free to eat ham. I know that you couldn't in the past, but you, you've given up Islam. You're now a Christian, and, and that's a freedom that, that you have. And he said, oh, I know that. He said, I, I could eat any time I want to. He said, but I've never, I've never eaten ham, and this is the reason why. About once a year I go back uh, to the Middle East and I... I spend time with my parents because they are they're still Muslims. They have not yet received Christ, and I love them deeply. And more than anything else in my life, I want them to, to come to Christ. And uh, every time I go back home and I walk through the, the front door of my house, the first thing my father says to me is, Have the infidels fed you that filthy pig meat yet? And I can honestly say, No. And uh, uh, he said, well, when I say that, my father's heart opens up to me. See? And all he would have to do is eat one ham sandwich, which he has the perfect right to do. And his father's heart would be forever closed. And for him, it wasn't worth it. Now, what this says to us is that, that people are worth anything. Yeah, we're free to exercise any of our freedoms. But... Uh, People are the most worthwhile commodities on the face of the earth, and therefore I can give up any right for their good. And I think of the cross. We're gathering today around the, the Lord's table to celebrate the, the cross and all that it means to us. Do you realize he had the right to keep his life? Our Constitution states, I think with accuracy, that we have the right to life. That's a legitimate right. But our Lord settled that issue in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, he gave up that right for our good, to save us. 
I read an inter- interview with Madonna the other day in which she said she she loves the crucifix. She very often wears a cross, as you know, because she said there's a naked man on it. And at first I winced when I read that, and then it just saddened me when I thought, you know, this, this young woman doesn't know. She doesn't know. I can't think of anything worse than hanging in front of the world with no clothes on, how vulnerable you would feel. But that's what our Lord did. He made himself vulnerable. He set aside his right to life to die for Madonna and me. If you asked me if I'd be willing to give up my life for Madonna, I'd, I'd, I'd have to say, I don't think so. If some assassin decided to take her out and I had to, you know, the, the possibility came that I could step in front of her and take that bullet, I, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. But our Lord did. He died for Madonna and he died for me. And he did it because he set aside his right to life so that I could have life. Thereby establishing throughout, throughout all of of eternity, the value of a human life. It's the most important commodity in the world. Now let's pray and let's prepare our heart for this time around the Lord's table.